Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think Red Wings tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score some last minute tickets. Welcome to Wings for Breakfast, episode two, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast on The Athletic. It is a late Sunday night here in Detroit, and we really hope that you've got Anthony Manta on your fantasy team. He is coming off an absolute heater in a 4-3 win over the Dallas Stars tonight. And uh, Prashanth, Prashanth Iyer, my wonderful co-host, how are you, uh, how are you feeling about it? What did you think of the game? Uh, I thought the game was fantastic. I think tonight's performance really was uh, what you want to see from the Red Wings because while they they were able to beat Nashville the other night, it kind of felt like they were just hanging on for that win. But tonight, they really outplayed Dallas probably in all three periods, and then you just saw Anthony Mantha just absolutely take over. It's what everyone's been waiting for from him ever since he posted the 81 goals and 81 games in his uh, draft year or I should say the year after he was drafted. And so this is what everyone's been waiting for. And I think you're finally getting to see it. Yeah. It's interesting because he even, he's even said now just this weekend, this is as confident as he has felt since that season, his, his last year, major junior, when he was an absolutely dominant player in the Quebec major junior league. I, I think, you know, it would be really easy to get way out in front of our skis and and say, you know, Manta has made it. You know, he is still a scorer. They are still streaky. This is not going to be forever. But if he has reached a point where his heaters are like this, and if he can make it so that the low points are not so pronounced, uh, what kind of player are, are, are we looking at evolving right before our eyes right now in Anthony Manta? I think the Wings would have a relatively special player because for years, Manta's kind of flown a little bit under the radar because the scoring totals haven't necessarily been to where people wanted them. You know, he was putting in 20, 25 goals. Yeah, that's a respectable total, but, you know, the the expectations for him were so much higher. But he's quietly, every year he's been in the league, been an absolute possession monster. Um, His Corsi numbers, his expected goals numbers always are the best on the team, if not uh, towards the top of the league. And so if he's able to put it together where he's able to have that impact on the ice and on the score sheet, with his own individual totals, I think you really are talking about a complete player. Detroit may may be in trouble with this upcoming offseason and him needing a new contract. Uh, Eisner may want, may want to get him a deal uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, certainly that uh, that that li- that looms in the background of all of this. Uh, one of the many restricted free agents the Red Wings have coming up, but but sticking in the in the moment without maybe getting lost in it so far. I'm curious, you, you talk about his possession numbers. So you're, you're basically saying not only does he have this wicked shot, not only can he score, 
you know, when you look on the total, the Red Wings are doing better when he's on the ice, even when he hasn't been scoring. Yeah, I mean, routinely over his career, the Wings have been roughly a 54, 55% uh, for. And so when I'm talking about Corsi, I'm talking about the percentage of shots that are taken when a certain player's on the ice. What percentage of those are taken by that player's team? And so when Mantha is on the ice, Detroit's taking 55, 56% of the shots that are taken when he is on the ice. And it's it's an incredible number because 55, 56% does put you towards the top of the league. We're talking about top 30 forwards or so in that respect. And so when you're looking at that, the reason why that's so important is because we know the players that have the ability to control that possession or the shot share, if you will, that's basically giving their teams more and more opportunities to actually convert that. And while every team and every player is going to convert those opportunities at a different rate based on their skills and the location of those shots, having more of those nonetheless is still a better thing than not. And so the Wings have always been a successful team with him on the ice. It's just now you're starting to see some of those are getting converted into goals and you're starting to see him being the one that's doing it. So that's a really encouraging sign for Wings fans. And I figure, you know, the reason that that confidence matters and all this for him and the reason why I bring up him saying he's as confident as he's been since that season, his last year in, in, in the QMJHL, is because when you have the puck that much and and your 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 line is taking that many shots, uh, the confidence to put that puck where you want it or, or take the shot instead of pass it up, especially when you have such a laser of a shot that he does, uh, that can be the difference in, in some of this production versus passing up those shots to guys who maybe aren't as equipped to bury or or having the confidence to do it immediately instead of you know hesitating, giving that goalie that extra split second to get over. I think confidence is a huge reason why he's had the start he has. Uh, and, you know, obviously I, I think if, you know, if he kept it up, right, he's on pace for 200 goals. I'm pretty sure we're all, I mean, more than that, actually. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're all confident that that's not going to come anywhere close. But uh, if his hot streaks look like this, like you said, that, that could be a pretty special player for the Red Wings to have going forward. Um, and I, I think, you know, while obviously he's not going to keep on this pace, I, you know, I predicted before the season 35, I, I think that looks pretty pretty conservative at this point yeah i mean i didn't really have an expectation for where he was gonna land uh goals total wise because it was always so difficult with him because you knew he had the talent you knew he had all of the necessary skills to to be a difference maker and the fact of the matter is in his first couple of years he he did fall a little bit short of what you wanted but the the interesting thing is and i'm gonna actually throw this back to a piece you wrote last year when you're talking about how far away Detroit is from being a Stanley Cup contender. And effectively, outside of Dylan Larkin, they were subpar at nearly every single position throughout that lineup. But Anthony Mantha was probably the closest piece to being that top-line winger that the Wings had been missing. And so, again, with him taking potentially this next step where he's showing that aggressiveness, he's showing the drive to the net. I mean, he has been all around the puck. You can make an argument he should have even more points than the seven he's already got. Uh, he could potentially solidify another piece of that future Stanley Cup contender that the Wings are trying to build. And same thing with Tyler Bertuzzi. Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely going to get back to Mantha and Bertuzzi, as well as Dylan Larkin, who we somehow made it this far into the podcast without mentioning. But uh, we're going to get back to them in a minute. Who who else has stood out to you? Maybe we'll get to them right now. Who else stood out to you through two games in the wins, the 5-3 Saturday night over the Predators and 4-3 tonight over the Stars? 
Yeah, I think obviously the top line has been the the absolute star for Detroit. I mean, they have basically provided 90% of the Red Wings offense, um, you know, through the first two games. It's They've been just a dynamite line to watch. You know, I threw out this stat on Twitter a little bit ago that if you look at just the expected goals generated by each team, and again, expected goals takes into consideration the number of shots, the quality of shots, the location, um, angle, and a couple of other factors. You know, the Bertuzzi, Larkin, Mantha line had generated effectively 1.07 expected goals, and the other three lines combined were under 0.5. And so that's basically, they've just been outstanding. They've carried this team to two wins. So I think they've been really, really effective. But stepping beyond those, I think another guy who's looked pretty solid so far has been Philip Ronick. And I've been particularly impressed with, um, one, his stick work in the defensive zone. He made a couple of really nice heads up plays, uh, in the defensive zone. So actually the lead up to the first, uh, Red Wings goal against the Predators the other night, that all started when Ronick made a very heads up stick check on a Predators rush, was able to swing the puck behind the net, get a clean breakout up the ice. Mantha ends up forcing an offensive zone turnover and the Wings end up scoring on that Bertuzzi goal. He's made a lot of subtle plays like that, and more importantly, I think he's done a really good job of stretching the puck through the neutral zone so that the Wings can play with their speed as opposed to relying on a lot of short breakout passes where the defense is able to keep the Wings in front of them. And so I think he's done a really good job of accelerating that Wings offense, particularly when he gets to play behind that Wings top line. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you you brought up Heronic because I, I think he, he does so many things that that suit this team well. I mean, you saw on the on the one five on three, he was not only was he shooting the puck, he was calling for it, he was quarterbacking sort of that five on three, and, and he's got a bomb. And if if he uses it, that's going to go in for him at some point. The other thing though that I think he does, and, and and you you got to this in the defensive zone, he looks worlds different than he did at this time last year, right before he got sent down. I mean, he he. Uh, he was not himself really at the, at the beginning of last season. He had to go back down to Grand Rapids and, and work his way back to Detroit. This is a guy who looks pretty comfortable in his own zone. I don't think he's perfect back there. I don't think many 21-year-old defensemen are, although the, one of the guys that are being sought tonight, Miro Heiskanen, looks pretty close. Uh, and, you know, Heronic, he just looks like the kind of guy that you can feel confident with in tough situations. Just as much as the Red Wings need their defense to chip in offense, they absolutely need their defensemen to to be able to be counted on, especially in those late games. They're going to play a lot of close games if they're going to play, if, you know, if they're going to have a chance this year. It's, it's going to be by playing close games. And he, he's showing a little bit that he can be counted on to be deployed in those situations. Um, so he would be one for me too. I think he was the third star of the night tonight. So, uh, yeah, he certainly a, a good start for Philip Ronick, who he had a half point per game. In, in his 40 some games last season. I don't know if that's a fair expectation for this year, but he's already at, at, at a point per game so far through two games. So we'll see, we'll see where that takes him. What uh, I'm curious when you watch tonight's game, to me, the first period looked pretty rocky. I, I thought that, you know, Detroit's top line did not have their, their best period. Both goals get scored on them. I thought they, they maybe weren't uh, playing their game in terms of, to me, their strength is how aggressively they forecheck and win the puck back in the offensive zone. It makes it makes them extremely dangerous because they're seemingly always getting the opposing team to be playing kind of kind of catch up in the in a really dangerous territory. I didn't think they did that much at all in the first period, and, and then it seemed to turn 
any real trends stand out to you for how the Red Wings were able to shift that game from a, from a 2-0 deficit tonight to, to where it ended up? Yeah, I think the first period, you, you hit the nail on the head, and I think a large part of that was the Wings were really struggling to hit the neutral zone with speed. And so one of their favorite plays they like to do is as they're breaking out of the defensive zone, they like to use that long stretch pass to a winger who's up towards the opposition's blue line. That winger will tip it in. And as that winger's tipping that puck in, he's tipping it into a particular corner where either you've got the centerman or you've got the other winger coming in on that side to immediately provide a forecheck pressure. And the wings top line has done an excellent job of that this season, particularly with Mantha and Bertuzzi uh, getting into the corners, but they just, for whatever reason, could not get out of their zone with that speed. And so when they were tipping those pucks in, or they were either missing the tip ins, it basically allowed the stars to recover the puck and then break right back. And so it kind of felt like they were on their heels the whole time. But to me, what really turned the tide in the second period was I think the stars just got entirely discombobulated. They took a number of silly penalties. Uh, I think at one point they took three penalties in maybe a five or six minute span, uh, really put themselves behind the eight ball, completely disrupted the flow of the game. And I think really after that sequence of penalties, the wings top line was able to keep the stars really on their heels by pressing and getting that four checking game going. They're able to find the speed through the neutral zone and really put a, a hurt on the stars defenseman the rest of the night. It's interesting because you brought up those consecutive penalties and I was pretty convinced at one point, I think it was after the, I guess they, they got one at the beginning of the second period on, on a power play. But right after that, I mean, it seemed like Dallas could not stay out of the box and the Red Wings just could not make them pay. I mean, I think, I think the power play was a little bit better than the final one for eight number would suggest to you, but nonetheless, you don't convert those opportunities. A lot of times you're going to lose the game. I mean, those are your golden chances they didn't because the Red Wings top line was able to at five on five uh, generate what they needed to do. So I got to ask, it, it's been two games. I don't want you to overreact. I don't want to overreact. How good is this top line? How good are they and how good can they be? Yeah. I mean, I think where you have to start is where they finished last year. And so looking back at last year's number, they played about 180 minutes together at five on five and you know, their rankings were kind of middle of the pack-ish. Um, so if you take it the, take all the forward lines that played greater than 100 minutes, and I'm pulling this data from Corsica, if anyone wants to look at this afterwards, they finished 57th out of 225 line combinations in that Corsi 4 percentage at about 55.3%. They had a plus three five-on-five goal differential, and they were 102nd in expected goals uh, four percentage. So not necessarily world-beating numbers, but certainly numbers that are in the right direction and kind of in the right trend uh, of where you'd want to be. If you look at them more just from a shot quantity perspective, and so I think the the person who probably does this best is uh, Micah McCurdy, who runs HockeyViz. Um, what he measures is threat with his heat maps on his website, HockeyViz.com. And so what he calls threat is basically the weighted sum of the shots in the graph times the league average shooting percentage from given spots. So effectively, it, when you're looking at a threat percentage, it's how much faster are, is this team going to score um, relative to league average if all the shots were taken by average players on average goalies. And so actually, he had them as a plus 28% in the offensive zone and a minus 1%, so minus being a good thing, meaning 1% fewer scoring, uh, scoring rate uh, against them. So he actually had them as kind of a net threat of 
plus 29%, which is towards the top of the league. And so when you're looking at other lines that they could compare to, you look at Tavares, Marner, Hyman from last year, they were plus 34 in the offensive zone, plus nine in the defensive zone. And they compared relatively favorably to the other top lines, like the Landis Gog, Rontanen, McKinnon, Gaudreau, Lindo, Monahan, uh, Marchesso's line out in uh, Vegas, even the Kucherov Point Johnson line. So they looked relatively similar. And then this season, they've just taken it to another level. I mean, it's, I already dropped the stat a little bit ago about how much of the offense they provided from an expected goal standpoint. It's been really something else. I mean, they're going to single-handedly carry this team uh, forward if they're going to continue to compete. Yeah, and, and you maybe stole my thunder a little bit there, dropping all those numbers on those lines, because <laughs> I, I think this is certainly a top 15 and quite possibly can be a top 10 line in the NHL uh, when they're firing on all cylinders. I think you know the threat level certainly is a great way to illustrate that, just because... Certainly, I think you can find maybe more dangerous scoring lines. And it's it's interesting to me that the Gaudreau, Lindholm, Monaghan lines threat level isn't higher offensively because that, to me, seems like one of those quintessential scoring lines. Tavares, Marner, Marner, Hyman, obviously one of the gold standards of those. And maybe the one that kind of most mirrors the kind of the dynamic, uh, although maybe maybe no real Marner on that line uh, and for the Red Wings case. But, but I think those lines, when you look at what they're able to do offensively, are – Probably, you know, not probably. Those are certainly uh, maybe more dangerous offensively teams on a, on a historical night in night out basis. But I think the Larkin line can play against anybody, and they can neutralize just about any line. Not to maybe zero goals, but to the point where if you play them against the top line, that top line is not going to be nearly as much of a threat to you because the Larkin line is going to make them play on their own end quite a bit. They're going to force those turnovers while forechecking. That changes the the nature of the game. That all of a sudden, the matchups start to look a little bit differently. What each line has to do changes a little bit. That's why I think the Red Wings can count on that line to play 20 to 22 minutes a night of really hard hockey. Um, and that's, that's why I think they're one of those top 10 lines. I don't know that they're going to be a top 10 line in scoring this year, but, but I think that they when you add up all the components to it, it is it's so well balanced between offense and defense between what roles each of them need to play how many times has tyler bertuzzi not just win a battle but somehow come out with a puck in a situation where he looks like he's beaten or just force a turnover just long enough for dylan larkin or anthony mantha to come in and and scoop it up it happened on i believe it was mantha's third goal tonight right along the near side boards to me so it would have been the left circle for them uh bertuzzi kind of engages a, a dallas player the puck comes loose just enough for Larkin to scoop it up. He brings it wide, fires a backhander, and the puck just sits there on, on the doorstep for Mantha to poke it in. I mean, those are the kind of goals that, you know, obviously the game situation matters for all of them. In this game, it was a really big moment. But you can imagine those are the kind of goals that really swing things because if, if a game is really back and forth, like I think this one is at times was, the Red Wings did sort of take momentum at, at certain points. Um, those are the kind of goals that really just change one team has to chase. And uh, that, that's why I think they can be right up there. How good do they have to be, though, in order to make this team really competitive? Because I think it's one thing to say they're going to carry this team and wherever they go, the Red Wings will go. I believe that. I'll be writing that for Monday on The Athletic. Uh, but I wonder how, like, how, much is, how much they have to do, given that there's not a whole lot of secondary scoring on this team, to, to really make the Red Wings a threat. 
This is the million dollar question. It's how how good do they have to be to really keep the wings competitive? Um, one thought exercise is we can maybe take a look at the best lines at, from last year, just at five on five, see how those lines scored. Conceivably, let's just say that the Larkin line does score at that same rate and they do it over the most minutes that a line played last year. And we'll look and see if they can really make up for what the rest of the the rest of the wings do. So last year, the top goal differential line was actually in Montreal. It was Brendan Gallagher, Philip Deneau, and Thomas Tatar. And they were plus 19 in goal differential in about 660 minutes. And so if we were to say that Larkin, Mantha, and Bertuzzi could have a goal differential that is at that rate over 661 minutes, but let's say that the Wings absolutely run this line 82 games and they play, you know, somewhere around 825 minutes, which is what the Landeskog, McKinnon, Ronton, and line played last year. They were the top uh, line by ice from last year. Yep, all at even strength. So you're basically saying if you run that plus 19 goal differential, but you extrapolate it out over about 825 minutes, you're looking at the Wings being about plus 24 goals um, at five on five. And that's just from the top line. The downside is last year, without one of Larkin, Mantha, or Bertuzzi on the ice, the Wings were minus 34 and five on five goal differential. And so even playing at the level of the best line in hockey over the most minutes available, plus 24 still leaves you at a minus 10, five on five goal differential. Now we know that all the lines don't always stay together. There is going to be a little bit of mix up. You are probably going to have one of Larkin, Mantha, or Bertuzzi on the ice for probably. 40% of the minutes this year, I'd guess. So that number is probably a little bit better, but you know, I'm still concerned that they're mu- they're not even able to draw even. Yeah. And when you look at what it took to get into the Eastern conference playoffs last year, the worst goal differential in the East was Carolina at plus 22. I cannot believe Carolina had the worst goal differential in the East playoffs, but that's an aside. Uh, I mean, that's plus 22. That's basically what you're talking about. If you were able to have the just that isolate that Larkin Mantha Bertuzzi number right at at full at full go. So this is maybe where we start to, to disappoint our listeners a little bit. We've praised this line uh, a lot so far in the show, but but here's here's the reality check, right? And it's not to say that they're you know they're the they're the only players on the team, and it, it you know I certainly don't think they're the only good players on the team. But when you look at what the Red Wings have done and have to do, what they have to basically ask of the rest of their lineup is to hold everything even. And that is a tough ask to do for a team that finished minus 50 in goal differential last year. And that, you know, that, that does include special teams. So exceptional penalty kill and power play could change the dynamic there, but it's still a huge ask for, for the rest of those lines to keep things more or less even. Yeah. And I mean, you can maybe make the argument that the wings bottom nine is slightly better than last year. Although remember, you know, you, you you did have 62 games of Gustav Nyquist last year that you don't really have in anybody this year. Um, but beyond that, you know, you can maybe argue that Philpola is better than getting games from a Wade Megan, a Dominic Turgeon, a Christopher, and a Michael Rasmussen. Um, and maybe Tara Hirose is able to give a little bit more scoring support than, you know, some of the other guys the Wings trotted out last year. But yeah, like you said, even at their best, if they can hold everything even, that's still probably not enough unless the wings power play and penalty kill really reach heroic heights, which 
last year after having an anemic power play and anemic penalty kill, it's kind of hard pressed to believe that'll happen. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, one of the other things that, that, that might get lost as we talk about them is okay. You know, they, they can, they can be a top 10 line. They, they probably are a top 15 line on most other teams. They don't have to play all their best players on one line, right? Like you think about how Pittsburgh is able to split up Crosby and Malkin. I mean, if you combine those two on a line, that's immediately a top five or six line, right? You think about Chicago with Kane and Taves. Uh, sometimes they play together. Sometimes they don't. A lot of teams are not going to be, as dependent on one line as the Red Wings are. It's going to put a lot of pressure on them, and it's going to put a ton of pressure on the bottom nine to to defend against what for for another team is maybe a second line that still could rank very highly league-wide. I mean, you think about the depth that just Tampa has, for example. You think about Toronto, which has, I would say, probably two of the top ten lines in hockey. I mean, there's and those are just teams in the Red Wings division. So the demand that this creates, yes, it's a positive to be able to play your best players together. Yes. It's a positive to have guys who seem to have as good of chemistry as they do, but that's where this picture becomes complicated for the Red Wings, because as good as that line can be, and as much as I think they, they appear to be trending that way, you know, day by day, dating back to last season, um, that it doesn't make a team, right? It doesn't make a whole team. And, and, and if you have an off night or even like we saw in the first period against Dallas uh, Sunday night, it, it can, it can be rough when things don't go a hundred percent perfect. And and I think that's something they're going to struggle with. And, and, you know, so certainly I don't want to be, be Debbie Downer here on, on, you know, on a two and O start against a couple of pretty good teams for the Red Wings. Uh, but just looking at this, as realistically as possible. Number one, it's going to be hard to sustain. And number two, even if it is sustainable, that might not actually be enough. And that, that is kind of a a crazy thing to think about after, you know, what, what everyone has just seen over two games when this line is clicking. Uh, But I think it's a reality that, that, that has to be brought up. So I'm going to pose a thought question to you. Let's imagine for a second that, you know, we're going to ignore the aspect that the wing should finish bottom five, uh, because ideally getting another top five lottery pick is in their best interest for the long-term rebuild. And let's say the goal right now is literally to do every single thing possible to win the game, which is exactly what Blashill and his staff are trying to do. It's exactly what the players are trying to do. Should the Would the Wings benefit from going to 11 forwards and seven defensemen, allowing them to play the Bertuzzi, Larkin, Mantha line, but also just basically double-shifting Larkin, Mantha, Athanasiu, and Bertuzzi and basically having one of them on the ice almost every other shift. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and Athanasiu certainly is one of those guys that, that I'm thinking of when I say there's obviously other quite good players on, on the Red Wings team. Personally, I think that that would do more to muddy the water than anything else. When you've got a line that's clicking and has as much chemistry as they do, I think you kind of try to bubble wrap it, right? Like You don't want anything to potentially complicate that. And it, it is tough for Andreas Athanasiu because, I mean, he's one of the most dynamic players on the team certainly I think you make the case that that maybe he's the most or even second most dynamic depending on on uh, what you think of Mantha player on the team and so it's it's tough for him to kind of get put on an island uh, away from those other three one upside is that he can play with Tara Hiroshi who I think complements him as well as anyone on the team we, we talked about how well balanced that Larkin line is with, with the strengths of those three players I think Athanasiu and Hiroshi are quite well balanced too Hiroshi as, as a give-and-go passer Athanasiu as just a a 
speed demon in a straight line who who can he's got a great shot he's got skill he can finish off those give and goes with Hiroshi uh he knows where to be on the ice that that Hiroshi will find him I think that's a good fit for him they really don't maybe have a center uh who who naturally fits uh the the offensive ability of that line who can also uh kind of do a little bit of the defensive heavy lifting and I mean I I expect them to to try Luke Lindenning there I think they liked uh what what that trio showed at times last season but when it comes to the 11 and seven idea and double shifting, I think that might do more to complicate uh, what, a, what a good thing that they have going than it maybe would be a solution. Yeah, I tend to agree with you there. The 11 forward seven defenseman idea, I think is something that gets thrown out occasionally. You know, John Cooper did this uh, a fair bit in Tampa when he wanted to basically get his star players a little bit more, um, ice time. So he would, you know, get Stamkos or uh point or, you know, Kucherov a couple of extra minutes on uh, other lines by being able to do that 11 forwards and seven defensemen uh, role. But, you know, for a team like the wings that, that wants to rebuild has a good thing. You do also have to think about the burnout aspect uh, of those players. And while yes, all these guys are 25 and under, um, you do have to wonder what the long-term toll is um, f- of them playing, you know, 22, 23 minutes a night, 82 games, and taking that kind of beating against the league's, you know, top forwards and top defensemen. Absolutely. All right. Uh, very randomly here, uh, it appears there's been a, a trade here late at night on Sunday night, live as we're recording. What do you got for us, Prashanth? So just scrolling here, it looks like uh, the Wings have traded David Pope to the Vancouver Canucks for defenseman Alex Biega. I imagine this is a deal that will not affect the NHL team or the NHL roster, given that Biega really has had a difficult time breaking in with Vancouver. And obviously Pope, aside from his great senior season, um, has not really shown much of anything in Grand Rapids this past year, and he's probably looking for a change of scenery um, so I suspect that Biega is just another guy who's going to maybe slot in, uh, in potentially Grand Rapids or as an extra, or I don't know if this is potentially signaling anything more serious with Trevor Daly and Jonathan Erickson, something that, you know, we can certainly investigate at a later date, but it's an interesting move nonetheless. Yeah. And I, I, I am inclined to think that that may be what it is. I don't know. Seriousness wise. I mean, I don't know. Frankly, you know, David Pope certainly had, had had shown some promise early in his career. He hadn't really been able to get a whole lot going with the Red Wings organization, right? So I think a change of scenery makes a lot of sense. It also made him relatively um, expendable, even though I hate to use that word, uh, in this kind of situation where Trevor Daly goes down. Uh, the Red Wings did not expect to have him in the lineup uh, for, for Tuesday when, when Anaheim comes to town. And the only other defenseman they had on the roster is Madison Bowie, who... Maybe Bowie slots into the lineup. I, I guess I would probably tentatively expect that to be the case. Uh, and maybe Biega now kind of becomes your seventh D, so to speak. Um, Grand Rapids' D pairs look fairly um, maybe they look fairly balanced between veterans and young players, between strengths and weaknesses in terms of and, 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 and in terms of style. So I almost wonder if Biega's being, I mean, we're going to find out, right? We literally found out about this 45 seconds ago, but I would guess that Biega maybe 
being added as sort of a seventh defenseman. He's also a veteran on the right side. So if they, if they want to go, if they want to keep to that kind of young guy with a veteran, uh, Biega could play opposite Dennis Chalaski. He's a right-handed shot. He's a guy whose possession numbers are okay. Um, so that it's interesting. I'm, I kind of do expect it to impact the NHL roster, at least in, in the near term, although maybe not the lineup uh, quite, quite as much. Yeah. You know, just taking a quick peek at his uh, numbers, you know, he looks to be basically a fairly middle of the road defenseman. Doesn't seem to have a substantial impact on, you know, offense or defense over his last couple of years. He's basically been a net threat of zero uh, per Micah McCurdy's model. And so he hasn't, doesn't really move the needle much. Don't think much of this in terms of the long-term impact. He's already a 30 year old defenseman. I suspect that, um, you know, outside of the short term need, and again, potentially this is all speculation that there's something more with Daly and or Erickson. Um, I suspect that he probably goes down to Grand Rapids after all of that gets sorted out. I don't know. Is that kind of what your suggestion there, Max? Yeah. I mean, you know, gosh, I think this sounds kind of callous to say, but it's kind of like if you got the short-term need and and trading David Pope can get you just a little bit of, of security in terms of an NHL defenseman right now, you know, David Pope's not an NHL ready defenseman right now. And I don't know how much you want to really poke around that Grand Rapids lineup. I mean, I, I think Dylan McElrath could give you minutes, but I think what he's given you in Grand Rapids in terms of his his pairing with one of those younger guys is probably as if not more valuable. So yeah, my thought is kind of if, if trading David Pope can get you some short-term defensive uh, cushion or, or security, then I don't think David Price, David Pope is uh, too steep a price to pay for that, even if it only ends up being a factor for a few weeks, and then who knows what happens after that. Uh, but, but you know, Big is a guy who's played the better part of the last four seasons in the NHL, and he'll he'll at least give him that depth. So I, I think it's certainly a depth move. I don't think he's going to be a, a, a core factor to this team moving forward or anything, but to me, just gut instinct, having not had time to talk to anybody about this yet because we've been recording the whole time, uh, that would be my first thought. So speaking of Grand Rapids, you know, they also kicked off their season uh, last night with an 8-5 win uh, over the Chicago Wolves. And you got to see the game. Uh, are you able to tell us a little bit about how the win- uh, basically how the Griffins looked, anybody that stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, the first game of an AHL season is always kind of interesting because it can be a little bit little bit chaotic at times to watch. So I got to watch uh, the third period was happening simultaneously to the Red Wings third period, but the way that it works with NHL road games is you usually go down to the event level after the second intermission because it's too hard to get down to the locker room through the concourse otherwise. So I was just kind of in the, the media lounge streaming the Griffins in the third period on my laptop and watching the Red Wings uh, on the TV in the press lounge because, you know, there's a delay and it, it can be kind of frustrating to watch because you hear everything that's happening before, <laughs> before it happens and all that stuff. So it's, it's a little disorienting. So anyways, I was watching both. And uh, then I went back when I got back to my hotel Saturday night and uh, and was able to watch the first two periods. So out of order, I've seen all three periods of that game. It was pretty chaotic. It was very high scoring. Uh, Evgeny Svechnikov had a goal and an assist. Maybe, maybe did he get two assists? I don't know if they credited him at, at the end. Uh, Michael Rasmussen had a goal on the power play. Giovanni Smith had a goal. I, I, you know, I think all in all, I don't think there was really anything that was notable in the run of play to, to make you say, Hey, this guy looks markedly different. A lot of the guys looked about how they looked in the preseason. Philip Zadina had a, a chance on a one-timer low 
you know, right, right near the crease that was saved by the goalie. I thought it was a pretty good look. He also had a couple of turnovers. That's pretty much par for the course for what it looked like in the preseason. Yeah. You know, just peeking at the stats, it does look like the Griffins probably were subject to just a, basically um, they got out shot handily at 40 to 26. It was likely score effects because they did get up early and they probably sat back a little bit. I'm sure you can comment on that a little bit more, um, but it is encouraging Again, we talked a little bit on the last episode about how the makeup of the Griffins is kind of different relative to years past. It's much more prospect heavy. And so it is a little bit more exciting to see these guys get out in a little bit of a run and gun type game and be able to hold their own, you know, especially a guy like Svechnikov. Max spoke at length uh, on the last episode about how Svechnikov really should be, really should have a strong year down in Grand Rapids. He, he knows the system. He's been raring to get back. And he should be fighting for that first call-up spot. And so it's encouraging to see him stand out along with Rasmussen as well. Yeah. So, and, you know, I think I'm going to be at the uh, home opener for them on Friday here. So hopefully there'll be a little bit more more, uh, data points there to talk about. But, you know, I think it was basically you you saw what what you expected to see from from all those guys. And for Svechnikov, certainly to start off like that is, is a good sign for him. He finished the preseason on a high note. I, I I still think that he will he will play significant time in the NHL this year, you know, 30 games or or more. And I think in order for him to do that, he needs to show in these first, let's say, three months that he is not just um he's not just out there, you know, using his shot or something, but but he, he feels fully comfortable skating and moving on that knee that he had surgery on. Um I you know, I one game uh, on, a, on a stream was not enough for me to say whether he looked that way, but um, a good start for him nonetheless. And I, I would say if you're going to make a note about anyone, it's that he's now between this and his last preseason game, which was effectively an AHL game because of the rosters, uh, a productive one for, for the second one in a row. Yeah. You know, more, more games to come. So we'll hopefully get to see a little bit more and hopefully Philip Zadina can, can snap out of his funk. Yeah, I mean he he's a guy that it's it's difficult to uh to kind of assess him when, when he's in it, right? Because when a player is going through that kind of slump, whether it's confidence, whether it's whatever, you don't want to read really too much into kind of their game at the same time at some point it's been a month here. We can't read nothing into what's happened with Philip Sedina. So, yeah, certainly as from an evaluation standpoint, it would be nice to feel like we're getting uh kind of a full and clear you know, view of, of Philip Zadina's game at this point, because I think there are some ways where he looks like he's progressed and other ways uh, that, 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 you know, like the turnovers that I'm talking about where, okay, are those confidence things or are those, or are those just straight up errors? Uh, I would feel a lot more confident saying one or the other, if, if I didn't know kind of all this background, uh, you know, struggles that he's been having. So I think those are, uh, those are things that that'll be interesting to see as, as time continues to go by, Let's uh, let's see. Is this the point in the show? Should we pivot to some listener questions here? Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, make note before we do that, that if you guys ever want to send us questions, usually we'll solicit them on Twitter. You can follow me at M underscore Boltman, B-U-L-T-M-A-N, or Prashant at Prashant. What's your Twitter handle? It's at Iyer underscore Prashant. So that's at I-Y-E-R underscore P-R-A-S-H-A-N-T-H. Yeah, we'll usually put out a call for them, but if you ever just want to shoot them to us, we, we can make a note of them too. Then uh, you can also—I should plug this now while while we're ta- while we're doing plugs. 
Uh, if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, and we would really love you to, we're going to get into all this stuff and more typically uh, on The Athletic. I'll have a story up Monday morning. Uh, you can go to theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast. You can subscribe, get 40% off. That'll give you full access to all of our written content as well as our podcast in the middle of the week that'll be exclusive to The Athletic. So make sure you do that. Now that I've done that, let's get to the questions. All right. So the first question that I think we should tackle is an interesting one from Michael Thompson. How should the Red Wings handle their restricted free agents, given that Anthony Mantha, Andreas Athanasiu, Tyler Bertuzzi, Philip Ronick are all up for new contracts uh, in the next year? Yeah, I, my thought is that not a whole lot of it's going to be within their control, right? Like, I think if you're Anthony Mantha and you are two games into a season like he is two games into, why on earth are you eager to sign the dotted line uh, here on October 6th or 7th, right? Like you are going to wait this out and bet on yourself uh, to do to do what, what maybe you can do, and that's to be a 35-40 goal scorer. That puts you in such a stronger negotiating position, right? Likewise, if you're Tyler Bertuzzi, really you've only got one full season in the NHL at this point. You've got one and a half, and, and they've been pretty good. But I think track record-wise, your your position only gets stronger if you can you can add another year to that. Andreas Athanasiu, your 30-goal scorer, wouldn't it be better if you were a back-to-back 30-goal scorer, right? So, and those are all risks. Some guys would rather just take the security and and uh, and lock it down. I'm not going to discount that entirely, but but I think for all three of those guys in particular, they're all kind of mid-breakout right now. I think it would be a kind of a tough sell for the Red Wings to get them to to lock it down right now. Yeah, and if you look at Eiserman's track record, it's it's a little bit mixed for the guys that had their contracts expire and they still were restricted free agents. You know, Kucherov got an eight-year extension, uh, but he did his the year ahead of time. So he got it basically nine days after he was eligible to receive an extension. Victor Hedman got an eight-year extension, um, again, done the first day available, so a year ahead of time. But then on the flip side, you had Andre Palat and Tyler Johnson. They got their deals done in July of their, basically their restricted free agency uh, Palat got a five-year deal with about a 7% cap hit. Tyler Johnson got a seven-year deal at about a 6.67% cap hit. Um, so given that, you're you're kind of thinking that Mantha Bertuzzi basically show out um, with the way that they've played so far and kind of hold out and get that leverage as best they can, given that they're still restricted for agents. So what does that come out to in terms of, so we got percent of the cap, my math's not as good as yours. What's, what's 7% on 83 or 84 million that we, we expect it'll be next year. Yeah. So we're at 81 and a half million this year, you know, roughly projecting 83 million, a 7% cap hit. If you're talking similar to what Palat got, um, who might be a solid comparable for a couple of these guys, 7% is about 5.8 million um, per year. You know, if you look at the evolving wild contract projections from this past year, um, in addition to projecting all of the free agents that were at that particular time period, so the July 2019 free agency period, they actually also projected what every other player's contract would look like if it were up for negotiation at that point in time. And actually, interestingly, at that point in time, they already had Mantha getting a $6 million um, deal. And so, again, if he continues on this particular tear, um, expect his number to maybe be north of what Larkin's getting, uh, potentially even in the six and a half million range or higher. Uh, Tyler Bertuzzi actually came in only at about two and a half million. Granted, he had a much smaller sample size for them to project off of. I suspect with his 
performance this year. If he continues to play the way he's played, you can again expect him to probably smartly get locked up somewhere in that five year, five million range, um, which would probably be a good deal for both the wings and for him. But the interesting question, I think, with Bertuzzi that you and I have kind of talked about is, you know, how much do you pay a guy like Tyler Bertuzzi, given that he may not be at the same skill level as Dylan Larkin and Anthony Mantha? And he's almost benefiting from the ability to play with the wing's two best players, maybe similar to what Justin Abdicator experienced uh, a couple years back when he had the opportunity to play with Datsuk and Zetterberg. Yeah, and I'll, I'll shield you from the flying tomatoes coming coming from some of the listers right now for for comparing Bertuzzi uh, to the Abdicator deal. But I think there's something to that, and and it's important. We just got to be nuanced about how we're saying it, right? Like, is Tyler Bertuzzi a better player than just an Abdicator? I think he is. I mean, right now he is. A, you know, certainly, certainly. But I think even when you look back to where Abdicator was at when he signed that contract, I think Bertuzzi's proven himself to be a better player than that. But the circumstances that you're talking about are very much at play in both situations. Abdulkader got his contract after playing with some of the Red Wings' top players, and, and I think in some ways it set expectations for him uh, quite high. And when those star players weren't on his line anymore, uh, those pretty much became out of reach, and and that's where they're at right now. And it was a long term deal, and uh, and that's something that certainly a lot of Red Wings fans are vocally upset about to this day. I don't think you're at quite that same risk with Bertuzzi for a couple reasons. I, th- I think. Abdicator was a little bit older when he signed his deal. And I think just on a brass tacks level, I think Bertuzzi's game is a little more well-rounded, but you're making a very good point about situations that the Red Wings need to be mindful of is, okay, how much are you going to pay sheerly off of production? And how much are you going to pay, you know, on kind of a holistic level? Because I, I don't think Bertuzzi's just kind of the passive beneficiary of all this scoring here. I mean, you've seen the plays he makes, right? I mean, everybody has, he, he, he had a, he roofed one on a, on a one-timer uh, in the opener for, on a tic-tac-toe from Manta and Larkin. And that was not a play that anybody just finishes off like that. He also does a lot for them in terms of winning pucks back for them and, and doing some dirty work to get them those pucks. I don't think just anyone could do that for them. So it, it's going to be an interesting negotiation because I don't think in, in the same way that maybe like an Athanasiu, I think you kind of can measure his impact in just what he's producing, not whole, you know, holistically, obviously, but, but to a much larger degree than I think you can with Tyler Bertuzzi. Uh, that to me is the single most interesting negotiation that'll play off for the play out for the Red Wings this coming off season, assuming that, that it does wait until then. And I think you illustrated a great reason why I think it will talking about what the evolving wild projection was at his current sample verse, you know, what, what we kind of think is, is more fair from our, from our perch up here on this podcast. Uh, so I think, you know, that'll be the one to watch. And and I don't know how you resolve that, uh, that dilemma. I think, I think you and I are in pretty clear agreement that Bertuzzi is a, a better player than Abdulkader, but a similar question at play. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating dilemma to, for the wings to consider, you know, Abdulkader, like we said, uh, he got a seven year extension at nearly 6% cap hit. This came after he scored 23 goals, 44 points, in a year where he basically got to play 77% of his five-on-five minutes with Henrik Zetterberg, 40% of his five-on-five minutes with Nyquist, 28% with Datsuk. He obviously had some combination of those three guys on his line for basically the entirety of the season. And so he really benefited. That was the first year he really elevated into the 20-goal territory. 
and he was handsomely rewarded with a seven-year deal as he was approaching the the age of 29. You know, an interesting way we can answer this question is through the methods of regression, where we can attempt to hold all the other variables constant. So we can try and account for teammates. We can account for competition. We can account for what the score is, where the puck is uh, in terms of the zone starts. So I think a, an interesting way to look at this would be through a regression model, such as the one that uh, that Mike has created, where he does attempt to isolate an individual player's impact while holding uh, or basically taking account of his teammates and basically taking account of his opponents, the zone starts, the score state, and a couple of other factors. So interestingly, if you revisit that Abdelkader season in 2014-2015, uh, Applicator's net offensive threat was just plus one percent, and that's even just you know that's in spite of the fact he's playing with Zetterberg, Nyquist, Datsuk. His isolated offensive impact was plus one percent. He had a pretty strong defensive impact at minus twelve percent threat, um, and that was the second best year of his career in Micah's model. But the fact remains that it was able to pretty well isolate that he wasn't the driver of that offense, although he did have strong defensive numbers. And I think you could that, probably argue when you figure who Pavel Datsuk and Henrik Zetterberg were, he might not have been the driver of the defense either. Like Datsuk's an yeah. all-time two-way player. I think that Wings team was just incredibly talented to where even when you account for Datsuk and Zetterberg, they were still able he was still able to have a, a solid defensive impact. I think a lot a lot of that also was Mike Babcock's system where he was sure. a very low event team. And so just in general, not a lot of shots were taken. But if you go to contrast Abdulkader's numbers with Bertuzzi, one, Bertuzzi is going to be 25 at the end of the year, but his net offensive threat last year, again, isolated offensive threat was plus 15.3%. Uh, and his defensive impact was a little bit worse at just plus 2.3. But already it appears that he's a better offensive player in terms of a driver of possession. His scoring numbers last year were better than any of Abdulkader's career numbers. So I do think the wings, while the situation may seem similar, would actually be wise to go a little bit higher with that AAV or the average annual value um, and maybe be a little bit more wary with the term. The, the problem with Applicator's contract was never the $4.25 million. It was the seven years at age 29. So I think yeah. they just have to be mindful with that. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to come off overly... You know, I, I wasn't really following the Red Wings in that season, right? So I'm, I'm reasonably new to the beat. Certainly, I wasn't following them at this level. If anything, they would have just been kind of on in the background of a of a sports bar or my college dorm or something that my roommates would have been watching. So I don't want to come off too strong here and saying that, that Bertuzzi was, was clearly uh, better. But I think the age thing is what makes me confident to say that, is that, you know, the, when you're able to do something like this at Bertuzzi's age, you know, 24, 25, there's a little bit more reasonable expectation that you can keep it up. And and I think just, we know that from how aging curves work. And I think that's the reason, that especially if the Red Wings are able to agree to something in that midterm and not need to go to seven years. Um, that's what makes it a little more palatable to get into that same kind of percentage of cap or a little yeah, bit lower even. Yeah, absolutely. And so don't be surprised to see both these guys. Um, in addition to Athens CU, I misspoke earlier. Ronick's not a free, uh, restricted free agent until after next season. Um, but Athens CU, Bertuzzi, and Mantha will all have contracts up at the end of the year and will be due new ones. Expect them to be a little bit bigger. Um, moving ahead, so there was one interesting wrinkle that came out um, just from one of the earlier practices talking about line combinations. And so Michael Thompson uh, picked this up where it looked like 
Athanasi was listed at center. And so after the, the offseason, there had been a lot of talk about him going back to the wing. Do you think he's actually going to get another shot back at center? Or is it a little bit of just the difficulty of picking up who's playing where um, in some of those practices? Yeah. Um, so it's, it is a little tough for me to say in this specific instance, because I was actually at a, uh, getting ready for a friend's wedding that day. So Friday I was off, uh, off to my couple of my best friend's wedding. So I was not at that practice, but I will say from watching many a Red Wings practice over the last couple of years, the positions in those drills that usually lead people to tweet lines are not so clearly defined that I think maybe there'd be reason to panic. Like it's, I don't know exactly where the lines kind of came from that were out there or anything like that, but um, it would be a very understandable situation if someone was in the middle of the ice, but not necessarily playing center. Right. I think clear as I've been able to understand it. And again, I wasn't at that practice, but my understanding is those guys could, could kind of play fairly interchangeably if they're play if they're paired together. I think sure. Maybe they both take a couple draws, but I think Luke Lindenning is kind of the, that's one of his strong suits. Right. Um, and I would have to think defensively the responsibilities of a center pretty well suited to Luke Lindenning there. So maybe it's kind of a semantics argument that we're, that, that we're kind of having here about, well, is he a winger, a center? But I know that this summer, certainly Steve Eiserman sounded like he viewed Andreas Athanasiu as a winger. And I, even if there's a little bit of crossover when he plays with Glenn Denning, I think that may just be more of like a, I mean, you kind of hear about it in basketball, like positionlessness it certainly applies to hockey too right like guys can kind of take take off little bits and pieces of each other's roles in order to make the whole unit work better i think there's strengths both of those guys have depending on what zone you're in what situation you're in um i don't think it number one i don't think it necessarily matters but i would be surprised if we're just talking strictly on a face-off which i think is the clearest way to see what position a guy's playing I'd be surprised if if anyone was taking face-offs over Luke Lindending with the possible exception of Dylan Larkin. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And actually, I think Glendening's probably the perfect uh, counter to Athanasiu, where I think we've seen Blash will do this over the last couple of years where he likes to drop Glendening on the ice as, again, the second center there that could take uh, the face-off if needed. But more importantly, I think what happens after the face-off is exponentially more important um, when it comes to defensive responsibilities. And I think you often will see Glenn Denning, even though he doesn't take the face off, kind of assume the responsibilities of a center on the ice. And so I think it's important to note that even though Athanasiu may take the face off, he may not have the defensive responsibilities of the center on that line, particularly when Glenn Denning's on the line with him. And so it is a little bit interesting and Glenn Denning may be there just to, to kind of protect him, but you know, once Athene, Athanasiu comes back, we will uh, we'll see how that line shakes out and if Glendening continues to play on his wing. Yeah, and we've talked about line balancing a lot on this episode, right? Like, I think he's he plays a role in that picture for, for that potential second line, right? Like, he's your guy that goes and, and wins a battle and gets the puck back crucially, right, for, for Athanasiu and Hiroshi. And, you know, he had a he has a he has got a decent shot when he needs to. Um, I don't know that you know he's he's certainly not an offensive player, right? Like first and foremost, he's you know two way energy and, and defense, but he plays in big moments and he does a lot of things that can help a couple of offensive players like Athanasiu and Hiroshi uh, round their game out to be more complete, make it a line that can play in the right situations. It also allows them to start 
Athanasiu in the defensive zone, which is huge because of his biggest weapon being his speed. If you have Luke Lindenning on the faceoff dot, you you feel more comfortable starting that line in the D zone because he's got a better than not shot to win that draw. And if he does, you might be springing Athanasiu for a breakaway immediately. Right. So, so there's some looks that it gives that I think make a lot of sense. And like you said, perfectly, their strengths complement each other uh, very well. All right. So the next topic, uh, one interesting question that I threw out on Twitter after the Predators game was, should the Wings look to utilize Anthony Mantha um, on the power play, similar to how the Washington Capitals have utilized Alexander Ovechkin over the years, where effectively the units may change, but Alex Ovechkin plays the entire two minutes. He takes all the shots from that OV spot, and he scored a lot of goals from there. And I think over the last couple of games, we've seen the Wings really place an emphasis on setting up Mantha's one-timer, and he's got an absolute rocket of a shot. Um, so, Max, what do you think? Do, should we go? Should the Wings be looking at uh, utilizing Mantha in such a fashion? Yeah, it, my first instinct is is no uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, as good as Mantha's shot is, Ovechkin, he is not, right? Um, I don't know if you're going to tailor kind of everything – around around him quite to that same degree although i do think he's probably their best power play weapon although but when i watched the game tonight because you kind of posed this to me in our in our text chat uh before the game as a potential topic and power play two is pretty rough like i gotta say it's only two games but my prediction of them having a a top half of the league power play was relatively contingent on power play two being improved partly as a result of Hiroshi who hasn't actually been on that unit yet. Uh, but it looks rough. And, and so if anything, rather than just shuffling Mantha to stay on the ice and rotating all the other players, because I do think having a power play quarterback of the same handedness as him is big for setting up one timers. I don't know if, if having Mike green being the one feeding him those one timers is as effective because of how much he would kind of have to telegraph uh, that he was going to go to Mantha just off the handedness. How about just playing power play one for like a hundred of the 120 seconds on a power play? I don't understand why they were splitting those so equally down the middle when the first unit was so much more effective. Yeah. I mean, that's another excellent point. Um, it's something even the Capitals used to do a little bit more before um, they rotated out. You still, you had John Carlson on the ice for a long period of time. You had Nicholas Backstrom on the ice for a long period of time. And you had Alex Ovechkin on the ice for a long period of time. Recently, you know, as Kuznetsov's picked up and after they acquired TJ Oshie, they were able to kind of rotate their players a little bit more. But, you know, why not? If you're able to maintain puck possession with that one single line, I mean, that line's more effective at getting zone entries. That line is more effective at maintaining possession and that line generates a lot more chances why not um you can always come back after the power play with you know some other lines that are a little bit fresher give those guys a minute or two break and then let them come back at five on five but i think that probably maximizes your power plays efficiency um, and effectiveness if they're able to play you know 80 percent of the power play minutes because frankly i called today's power play too it looked like aggressive forechecking i mean they were just swinging the they were just swinging the puck around the boards it looked like they were running the cycle um except they were on a five on four and so it was i think they need to get a little bit more puck movement going and maybe the way is just leave the whole unit on the ice yeah the, the flip side to it and my guess for why it was done the way that it's been done would be a couple of things N- number one you don't want to over kind of burden i know 
power play is not supposed to kind of be difficult minutes per se, because ideally, if, if, if you're the power play team, you're just going to sit in the offensive zone the whole time, tic-tac-toe until you score a goal. But sometimes it is a lot of up and down the ice and, and you know, maybe you don't want to overburden someone with a two-minute shift. That can be quite taxing, right, if it's not going well. Number two, and I think maybe the more important point is that, okay, if power play two is not working, well, part of the reason maybe that Andreas Athanasi was out and the pieces that you've been practicing with uh, aren't really in the places they're supposed to be. And so the only really way to fix that is to kind of give the reps that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to build chemistry by playing basically is what I'm saying. And, and man, I know that, you know, a game like tonight where you're one for eight on the power play, if you lose that game, maybe you are kicking yourself for, for that. And I'm not, I haven't asked about this yet because it wasn't really one of the big talking points after the way that the game turned out. But I wonder if that wasn't part of it. My, my theory is that I think, you know, that unit, if they are going to do something, and I think they have some pieces to do something. I think Hronik in that one-timer spot on the second uh, unit can do some similar damage, even though his shot's not quite as prolific as Mantha's. Um, my guess would be that, at least a small part of that decision would have had to do with needing them to just get some reps in order to be effective. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, once Athanasi comes back, we expect him to slot on the first power play unit, correct, Max? And then Hiroshi would move down to the second. Man, I think so. But I got to say, if Hiroshi continues to have plays like he made tonight on that seam pass to Mantha, he's going to make it extremely hard on them to, to take him off that unit. And I don't think Athanasiu would be out of place kind of on, on that on that right flank on the second unit. I mean, I think maybe it gets a little bit tougher because of the handedness to have him um, getting one-timers f- from from Mike Green. But it, it is possible that Philip Hronik from the left flank, right? Like if, if Green feeds Hronik and it looks like a one-timer, but it's actually kind of a one-time seam pass to Athanasiu for a one-timer, like that could work, you know? Like he's got a much better shot than Hiroshi does. Um, and I think if 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 they're really committed to running that power play one all about the Mantha shot from the right flank, Hiroshi may be the better option for that style. But I also could see a, a, the logic being, hey, Athanasiu would give them two really good shooters on, you know, one on each flank and maybe make them harder to predict. So they're going to have some real questions with that, I'm, I'm guessing, because I I think Athanasiu was the one who was in that spot at most of the practices I watched through the preseason. Uh, but I got to wonder if Hiroshi, if there's any way he could force their hand because, boy, he's looked pretty good in that spot so far. Yeah, absolutely. And then Athanasiu in the second unit would actually give them someone who's able to to carry the puck in with possession because that's been a huge problem for the second unit is just being able to get the puck into the offensive zone and maintain possession so they're not aggressively cycling the puck to create space. Although Hiroshi can be that for either unit, right? Like if he's the one who gets pushed down, he's your entry guy, no doubt, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he's looked pretty solid on the entries opposite of Larkin on that first unit. Yep, yep, for sure. We got right. any other uh, any fan ones, or should we wrap this up? I think we can go ahead and wrap up just by taking a peek ahead at the upcoming games for the week. So, you know, the Wings have a relatively light schedule for the week, but at least it's more games than this previous week. So uh, we've got the Ducks in town on Tuesday, and then the Wings head up to Montreal on Thursday. And then Saturday should be a big one with the Maple Leafs coming into town. Max, anything to watch for in those games? 
Yeah, I mean, there'll be plenty, right? I mean, I'm interested to see. I, I got to assume that the Ducks will, will throw John Gibson at, at the Red Wings on Tuesday. But they do have a back-to-back uh, later that week at Pittsburgh and at Columbus. So they're, they're on a little bit of a road swing. Uh, I, I'm assuming they're going to go Gibson because if, if you have John Gibson, you should use him as often as humanly possible. But uh, that's one thing to watch for. The Rings have caught two backup goaltenders in their first two games so far. So it's certainly a storyline. Uh, and then looking at the rest of the way, you know, Montreal, like that's been, that's been a brutal matchup for the Red Wings, certainly in my year and a half, basically that <laughs> I've been lingering around the beat. So that's, that's going to be a big test, but it's also, you know, we've talked at length about Anthony Mantha, right? Like he's going back for, for a game and realistically his hometown, he's from Longay, which is not too far at all outside of Montreal subway right away. So I'm sure he'll have a lot of friends and family on hand. And if he is still uh, looking like he did, tonight that's going to be kind of must watch right and uh and then you got home against toronto right that's the real measuring stick game i think here i mean no matter what happens in in these next two uh you're gonna learn a lot about this team in terms of how they handle toronto's attack we've talked about it with the top line right they can match up with it with a lot of a lot of teams really good lines toronto's got two that are better than that top line right like i think the Matthews Nylander line or the Marner Tavares Hyman line. I mean, Hyman's kind of out right now, but um, even just those two players, like those are two unbelievable lines and maybe the Larkin line can check one of them. Who's going to get the other and how's it going to come out? The wings had the Maple Leafs number a little bit last year, uh, but Toronto's got tons of firepower and it's going to be very interesting to watch the Red Wings try to take on that challenge and, and try to, you know, are they going to try and, I assume they're just going to try to make that another, like you said, low event game and try to try to score them where they can. Because if it's, I, I mean, I would never want to get into almost, I mean, I think any team in the league, right? Like if I'm the coach of any team in the league, I can't name one other than Tampa that I think I would try to play run and gun style against Toronto. I mean, their defense is not the best, uh, but it's improved. And I think Jake Muzzin's for real. So I'm I'm thinking if I'm the coach of any NHL team, my philosophy is to try and make that as low event as possible against the Maple Leafs. Yeah, and like you said, the Wings have had some success over the last couple of years. They've been able to draw in most of the matchups with the Leafs. I didn't think they had really been run out of town in any of them, although this uh, the way the preseason game ended with most of the regulars in the lineup certainly has to leave a sour taste in their mouth. So I'm expecting they'll come out ready to go for that one. Yep, absolutely. But with the Red Wings off to a 2-0 start, I think we've already been uh, surprised more than a little bit just in in 28 hours time or so between puck drop of game one and and the end of game two. So certainly a lot can happen over the next few days. We will obviously be be back at it with another episode for our athletic subscribers midweek. If you're interested in that show, the best way to hear it and the best way to support our show in general is by going to theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast we'll get you hooked up with a 40 percent off subscription i think you'll really enjoy the content not just on the red wings but on any other teams you enjoy we've got some of the best writers in america i think if, if you're a detroit fan certainly getting cody staven hagen chris burke james edwards we've got nick Baumgardner on both michigan and michigan state as well as dedicated michigan and michigan state writers so i think it's just a, it's a phenomenal collection of, uh, of stories every single week. I can't recommend it enough, and not just because I, I work here. So do that. Get the 40% off, and uh, hopefully you'll be tuning in when we do our show midweek.